0: Um, I'm Rachel, and I'm going to be bringing us the the Bible reading that John's going to be speaking on tonight. So we're reading uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. uh, 30. So you can read along on the screen, or in the pew Bibles, it's on page 1184. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 30. we wait for it patiently in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express and he searches our hearts and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well friends, we're almost finished our series on Romans. So this is the second last week on Romans. Next week at the youth service, we'll be finishing chapter eight. And then after Romans, we'll be starting a new series. So on the front of the newsletter, it's a series on relationships. We want to be clear on what God teaches about relationships. And so you can have a look at that. Something you might want to invite your friends to. So we'll be looking at gender marriage, sex, dating, singleness, and also same-sex attraction. So over six weeks, that's what we'll be doing after the next week. Uh, but tonight, uh, we'll be looking at this passage, a wonderful passage, but it might reach deep into our hearts and expose our own hurts and pains and our own long, longings and groans. So uh, let's come to God once again and ask for His help. And also, hopefully, this might be healing as well for us as we hear of what God has to say. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on this wonderful part of Scripture, that you might help us see our deep longings for things to be better and help us to see that answered in in your plans and purposes for us and in what you've done for us in your Son. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, heal our hearts if we uh, are exposed of our past hurts and pains. uh, But we pray, Lord, that you'll use this text for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, we all know that bad things happen to bad people. We know that. We know that bad things happen to good people as well. We all know that. And we also know that bad things happen to Christians all the same. Christians suffer just as much as everyone else. We know that, don't we? And even from amongst the experience of our congregation, both morning and evening, just hearing of stories and difficulties of hardship and tragedies, I'm often left thinking, I mean, life is tough. Life is tough. This world is a mess. There's so much pain and suffering. And I I wonder whether you've felt the need to even question God. I mean, what good is it in being a Christian if we suffer just as much as everyone else? I mean, what comfort is there for the Christian? I mean, I hear of so many tragedies and hardship and pain and sorrow is just is overbearing sometimes there's this one tragic experience that i still remember and i remember hearing this when i was at bible college many years ago it was really unbelievable when i heard of what happened to this christian family it did leave me thinking i mean how do you make sense of the christian life that is filled with suffering now this was something that happened to a christian family in america To a family, the Chapman family. This is the husband and the father of the family, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you may have heard of his music. He's a famous Christian music singer. He's won five Grammy Awards. This family is a committed Christian family, committed to Christ. They have six children, three biological, three daughters that they've adopted from China as little girls. But the tragedy was what happened on the 21st of May in 2008. The older son was pulling into the driveway of the home. And the young girl, one of the adopted girls, the daughter, five-year-old sister, Mary Sue, ran out to meet the brother, but the brother did not see her and ran over her. She was airlifted to the children's hospital, but she was pronounced dead on arrival. that's a Christian family. They love the Lord. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of that as a Christian? I mean, just imagine the gut-wrenching pain that that family had to go through. But also imagine the guilt, the heartache of that older brother, who, what he felt, what he has to continue to bear. I mean, how do you make sense of that? A five-year-old girl, what comfort could there be for the Christian? What good is it to be a Christian? Well, in the aftermath of that grief and pain and sorrow, Stephen, he's a famous Christian singer, he was unsure whether he would sing again and perform again. But eventually what he did was he wrote an album. The album's called this, Beauty Will Rise. And in it, he's got a series of songs which expresses his journey, the journey of him and his family, the darkness of their soul that they went through, the emotional roller coaster of the family after what they experienced. Now let me read some of the lyrics from one of the songs. Beauty Ruth Rise, that, that song. It was the day the world went wrong. I screamed till my voice was gone and watched through the tears as everything came crashing down. Slowly panic turns to pain. As we awake to what remains, it was the journey of the family through their darkest times. But he also writes in his songs of hope, of the sovereignty of God, of the control of God and future glory. So, in that same song, he goes on to say this and sift through the ashes that are left behind. But buried deep beneath all our broken dreams, we have this hope out of the ashes. Beauty will rise. Wonderful album. I was listening to it all week just to just to feel his grief and sorrow, but also to feel the, the wonderful hope he has. That was how that family makes sense of their tragic experience. In their pain, they clung to God. In their sorrow, they hoped for glory. And that's how our passage begins. Have a look with me, verse 18. Verse 18 is like a summary verse of our whole passage, and it really is a profound and magnificent claim. What is claimed here is almost unbelievable. You see, what is said here is that whatever I experience in life, whatever it might be, it will pale in comparison to the glory to come. Have a look, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I mean, that's a verse worth memorizing. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it really hard to believe that verse. That's a huge claim. I mean, this verse is saying, as painful as it is to experience a life where there is no love, no joy, no care in family life, as helpless as it is to endure some chronic lifelong illness or even get cancer, that, that pain, that sorrow, that experience is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. I mean, think about that. That's mind-boggling. But try making sense of that to a Christian Syrian mother whose son was among the 250 children kneaded to death in bread machines by the ISIS thugs. I mean, really? Her pain, her sorrow of losing her son, is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed? Is that for real? Or well, try making sense of that to this Christian Iraqi mother whose house was burned by ISIS terrorists while her 12-year-old daughter was still inside. Her 12-year-old daughter died in her arms later in hospital. I mean, really? That pain of losing your child is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed? I mean, can we believe this? Or try making sense of that to a father and a mother who lost their five-year-old daughter through some innocent, tragic accident. I mean, is that pain really nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed? I mean, we're, we're here not only meant to feel the weight of this claim but actually also meant to feel the absurdity of this claim i mean this is a a sick cosmic joke if it weren't real if this wasn't true but that is what the apostle paul is telling us it is true so hard to believe but so glorious that it's true but you see in the meantime life now for us is still marred by hardships and pain, and suffering, and grief, and sorrow, and cruelty, and violence, and ruthlessness, and inhumanity. Life will still be marked by these things. And that's why here in this passage, we see all these long, deep groanings, the groanings of creation, our groaning, and even the groaning of the Spirit of God, this heart-aching longing for all this to end, and for glory to come. And so we see here, let's have a look. Firstly, we see that creation itself groans. That is, the whole created order is groaning for things to be better. You see, the way that things are in the world now is not the way they are meant to be. Natural disasters, drought, famine, pollution, it's not the way creation is meant to be. And that's because it is in bondage to decay. That's what we see here. And so instead of like what we see in that movie, that wonderful Disney movie, Lion King, how Mufasa speaks to Simba and says it's the wonderful circle of life. What we actually see here is not, a, not the wonderful circle of life, it's the circle of death. Creation is trapped in this endless cycle of decay and corruption and death. And that began right from the very beginning when Adam sinned. You see, creation was cursed. When we were cursed, and creation will be redeemed when we are redeemed. See, that's the groaning of creation. That's what it's longing for. And so we see that. Look at verses 19 to 21. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so what that's telling us is that the whole creation is bound up with humanity. In fact, the whole creation is bound up with Christians, not the other way around. And so creation is groaning with this great anguish. And it's described here as labor pains. Look at verse 22 we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now let me tell you, I don't know much about labour pains personally, but I've seen labour pains. Maybe I did feel a bit of labour pains when my hand was squeezed by the strength of a gorilla. I felt a bit of it, but I'm sure it wasn't the same. But this past week, as I was reflecting on this passage, I did ask Yvonne while we were driving. I asked her, so was was it really that painful? Because I'm thinking, I mean, you had Esther, but you didn't stop. You had two more kids after that. It can't be that bad. But I did ask her, so was it really the worst pain you've ever experienced? She turned to me while I was driving, almost angry. What do you think? This thing came out of me. (laughs) Of course it was painful. She also said some other stuff, which I can't repeat to you. (laughs) It was like this, but I won't say. Well, that's the anguish, pain, and groaning of creation. It wants to, sort of metaphorically, want the baby to come out. It's groaning for the end. But it's not just the groaning of creation. We groan as people, we groan. You see, life has its joys, has its wonderful moments, but it also has its fair share of pain and suffering. And so we groan, we long for that perfect, sinless life in heaven, enjoying the unspeakable glory, finally in our eternal home, in the loving arms of our heavenly Father. And the Spirit of God that God has given us who believe is a foretaste that the future will be better. That's what we see, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And because we know that it will be better, how do we live? Well, we live in hope, in the hope of the promises of God, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. We, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now Stephen Curtis Chapman, the guy I spoke about, the one who lost his daughter. In a TV interview, he reflected on his loss, the loss of the family and the grief they experienced. But he also spoke of the hope. It was profound. It was extremely encouraging. He was all over the news and interviews because he was so different to the other people. This was what he said. He said, we were made for eternity. This life is so short. If it's five years, if it's 95 years, our hope is eternal. It's hope in the promises of God. We anchor ourselves to it. We hold on to it and it's true. And he writes about his hope in his songs. He expressed it in, in this one song, God is a true. He writes, God is a true that your love for us is never ending. Could it really be true that you died for letting us go? God is a true that not even death can separate us. Well, if it's all true, then what can I do but put all my hope and all my trust in you? This is coming from a man who lost his daughter. You see, creation groans, but we groan as well, when finally, at the end, this endless cycle of sickness and dying and death will be broken for good. So we see creation groans, we groan, but what we also learn here is that the Spirit of God groans. Now, I suspect many of us might not be aware of this, that the Spirit of God groans for us, that he groans on our behalf. I remember a few years ago now, on a pastoral visit to the hospital, after hearing of this awful accident that left a man in a coma. I remember going there late at night. Still remember vividly meeting the wife in the waiting room. I mean, she was completely shaken up shivering in fear eyes filled with tears and when she saw, saw us she, she just broke down and I still remember her first words to us she said I can't pray I just can't pray with tears she said I can't pray you see her heart was aching so much she didn't know what to do we gave her a hug we spent some time in prayer with her but what if I didn't turn up. What if I wasn't there to pray with her? Would that have meant that in her distress, she was alone? Well, no. You see this passage? The Spirit of God prays for us in our pains, in our suffering, in our darkest times. It's why this passage is so wonderfully comforting for Christians. Have a look, verses 26 to 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he, that is God the Father, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, that is to remind us that we are never, never alone. Nor do we ever pray alone, for the Spirit prays for us in accordance with the will of God. I mean, it's comforting for me because I might muck up my own prayers and muck up what I pray for and pray for things that are not in accordance with God's will, but in a sense, I can trust the Spirit to always pray right prayers for me. Is there any greater comfort than that? I mean, God has not only saved us. He's given us his spirit to empower us to live his way. But more than that, he's given us his spirit who prays for us on our behalf. And so what we see here is just wonderfully comforting for us who are Christians. And so what we see here, the the heart aching groan of creation, of us, and also of the spirit of God. But then, as we do groan, how then do we make sense of the present, of the present difficulties? Yes, we know the the glory will be in the future that will be revealed one day. How do we make sense of this time of groaning when difficulties and hardships and broken dreams occur? Am I meant to now, as I live, in a sense, just suck it up and wait for future glory? Is that meant to be our attitude or our Am I meant to just bear it out, just wait, wait for that future glory? Or am I meant to just, just hang around, just wait, just, just, just ignore it, just wait for the future? What's the attitude we must have? Well, you see, the attitude we must have is not just to remember the destination. That's important, future glory. But the journey is also important. And that's what Paul makes sense of in these final verses see, he's telling us here, whatever we experience in life, however hard and difficult and painful it might be, and however hard it is to believe, God is working for our good. Always. Not sometimes, not just when it feels like it. Always. God is always working for our good, even through the bad times. I mean, this is Amongst my favorite verse in the Bible, verse 28, have a look. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who is God working the good for? Have a look again. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who hate him, of those who ignore him, of those who are indifferent to him, no, it's of those who love him, who have been caught according to his purpose. And how can God work his good in us, in all things? Well, the only way that that is possible, that God can do that, is if he is sovereign, completely sovereign, completely in control. And that's what we see in our final verses. Have a look. Verses 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also caught. Those he caught, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You see, that is God's eternal cosmic purpose for us. It is that we will be one day glorified. What does that look like? Well, it looks like to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You see, that's the destination. But the process, God often uses suffering and pain and hardship and difficulties. Why? Because he's mean and angry? Well, no, it is in fact for our good that we might be more like Christ. You see, it's not just a destination of glory, but it is the journey of suffering. You see, if God really, and he's in control, if he really wanted us all, to be successful in life, to be comfortable, to enjoy all the wonderful uh, experiences that life has to offer, to never experience pain and suffering. If God really wanted that, do you think he could do it? If that was what God wanted, of course he could. He could end our pain and suffering completely, give us a perfectly comfortable life. But of course, that's not God's desire. God's desire is that we be conformed to the likeness of his Son, who suffered, who was spat on, who was betrayed, who was mocked, who was shamed, who was rejected, who was crucified. Now, do you think God might use some of that in our life for our good? Of course. Of course. You see, if I get robbed and it's annoying someone stole all your money all your stuff all your precious possessions and your photos and your computer and it's just annoying dealing with the insurance and you just hate the process how could that be for my good how could that be conforming me to the likeness of christ well perhaps it might be teaching me to love this world less and to seek heavenly treasures more or if my relationship goes sour and i experience a broken heart bitterness and anger and even rage how could that be for my good how could that be conforming me to the likeness of Christ or well, in that I must learn like Christ to forgive I must learn to repent where I'm wrong I must treasure my relationship with God it is somehow for my good as well or when I get sick and I'm just miserable and depressed and sad and weak and unproductive how could that be for my good How could that be conforming me to the likeness of Christ? Well, firstly, every time I get sick, it kills my pride. It shows me you are not in control. This little virus that's unseen puts you in bed, like useless and hopeless. It kills my pride, and that is for my good. It also causes me to depend on God more and long for heaven more. You see, in everything we are told in this wonderful verse, in everything... God is working for our good to conform us into the likeness of his son. And that will include suffering. You see, it's not just the destination of glory, but it is the journey of suffering. And there are plenty of stories, I'm sure you have your own stories, of Christians who suffered much. But at the end of that, you see how they've grown so much. Now let me share with you a story of a sister of someone here, Anna Harris's sister. I've asked for permission, so she's happy for me to share this. Zoe Krillman. Many of you may have met her, but if you don't remember, many of us, in fact, prayed for her about four years ago. Four years ago, Anna's sister, Zoe, she was 23 years old, halfway through university, doing quite well, very active. But she was involved in this freak boating accident. What that meant was that her her leg was amputated just below the knee. And the next three months after that was a blur of surgeries and doctors and hospitals and operations. Well, knowing that Zoe is a Christian, this past week I contacted her. I wanted to understand. I know you're a Christian. How do you as a Christian make sense of that horrible, tragic experience? You've lost your leg. And how do you make sense of that and this passage in Romans? She was kind enough to share of her experience and she did give me permission to share this with you. This was what she said. When I fell out of the boat, I had no idea what had just happened. I just saw lots of blood and knew it wasn't good. When I got back into the boat and realized my foot was clean gone, the gravity of the situation hit myself and my friends. Praise God, they were also Christians. So the realization that that we were way out of our depth drove us straight to our Father. One friend caught triple zero, one prayed. Our God heard our trembling prayers, and I'm sure the Spirit was groaning pretty loudly with us. I remember vividly thinking, either I'll spend the rest of my life with one foot, which people have done before me, or pretty soon I'll meet my Maker. Having the assurance of God's sovereignty in the situation and his ability to bring about his will was a fantastic comfort. Now, she's bleeding all over the boat. Her foot is gone. That's what she's thinking. Where do you think she got that assurance from? It's from this passage. And now looking back, this was what she said. This is the mind-boggling beauty that Romans 8.28 picks up. For me, it made me realize that God loved me so much and could see the good that would come from losing a foot that he allowed it to happen. I mean, when Zoe shared that with me this past week, my heart was overjoyed. Praise the Lord. God is so good. But now I want you to take a moment to just imagine that. What if God's good plan for you, that you be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Is that you lose a little comfort? Is that you lose a little pleasure? Is that you live a simpler lifestyle? Is that you might even lose a foot? I mean, that was Zoe's experience. She came to understand how God wonderfully, in his good sovereign purposes, did that for her. One wonderful news that came out of her experience was that one of her friends, after this incident, became a Christian. That's wonderful. I mean, that's only one of the many pluses out of this tragic experience. But her friend said this, Uh, her friend said to her, seeing God's faithfulness to you and your family through this all means that I've decided to become a Christian. So you may have lost a foot, but I've become a Christian, so I think it's all okay. And that's, nice hearing from a friend it sounds funny doesn't it but think about it that's another soul saved for eternity because of a foot so how can christians get through life how do we make sense of all this pain and suffering and heartaches well this is how this passage what good is it in being a christian it is every good you see, this is one passage of Scripture where if you do not understand this deeply in your heart, and if you do not apply this comprehensively to your life, your life will be far, far poorer for it. In fact, not just poorer, but confused and depressed and miserable. But if you understand this, believe and apply, then your Christian life is should be, is, should be, as it should be. And that is this. Three things I'll end with. It will be ceaselessly homesick, overwhelmingly peaceful, and restlessly patient. You see, our life as Christians should be characterized by being ceaselessly homesick. Homesick for heaven. This past week, Esther, my daughter, in year five, she went on a school camp. From Wednesday to Friday. Something I only found out this past week, which I thought was quite cute, was that the teachers allowed the girls to bring a photo of the family if they think they will feel homesick. And so on Tuesday night when I was away at a meeting, Yvonne told me this afterwards. Esther went to our computer, printed a photo of our family. She thought she might get uh, homesick. And so on Friday when she came back from school, I asked her, so do you look at us? Do you look at the photo? Do you miss me? I was hoping that she might miss me most. But she did say, I I missed everyone. You know, very, very uh, democratic there. She said she looked at it every night. Even though camp was so much fun, archery, canoeing, staying up late, she got homesick. And so she should have been. And in a sense, (laughs) we should be too. You see, when we read of what we've read here, how can we not be homesick for heaven? What does it say about our life if we are not homesick for heaven if life is going so well so comfortable nothing to long for nothing to groan for what does that say about our life what well, is it says that we have lost perspective on eternity and we've got it all completely wrong like, uh about a month ago actually a bit more than a month ago you remember when i went away for a week on holidays to bright beautiful place in victoria beautiful place Alpine trees, crystal clear flowing river through bright, the flowing mountains in the, in the background and snow-capped mountains, driving with, with a beautiful wife who's um, a good cook, not very, very demanding, so very good. Three wonderful kids in the back. And we, it was just life it was so good. It was wonderful. But as good as that was and as good as that feeling was, we had to remind ourselves, I mean, this is nothing. As good as this is. This is nothing compared to the coming glory. And so we remain homesick for heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor during World War II, said this, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and longing forward joyfully. That must be our experience ceaselessly homesick this is not enough for me but but we must also be characterized by being overwhelmingly peaceful now do you know what happened uh, with zoe and her friends after they're bleeding she's bleeding they're waiting for the ambulance you know, i might be screaming in pain i want i might want to punch something i might be crying I, I don't really cry but i might even try to at that point do you know what zoe was doing she was singing amazing grace to keep calm. How do you get this peace, this overwhelming peace? Well, we can get this overwhelming peace, knowing that whatever suffering we experience is nothing compared to that future glory. There is overwhelming peace for us, knowing that God is in control in all things, good and bad, for our good, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. There is overwhelming peace knowing that we are never alone, never alone. We have the Spirit of God who groans for us. See, that's so important for us to remember. The small heartbreaks, the big heartaches, the tough experiences, the darkest times, you are never alone as a Christian. Firstly, we have each other to share our burdens with, to share our pains with, and we must share it. We shouldn't internalize it. But even if you feel alone, you are never really alone. God has given us his spirit who groans for us, prays for us, intercedes for us. And so if we know that, our lives are characterized also by overwhelming peace. And finally, our lives are characterized by being restlessly patient. We are restless. We long for, we groan for, we ache for glory. But we wait for it patiently. Stephen Curtis Chapman, restless patience in his songs. As he waits for the day when he sees his daughter again and meets his Lord. It's beautiful. Listen to his songs. And it's been the case for all Christians. And it must be the case for us. Restless patience. I'll end now with another story of another Christian. Many of you may have heard of this lady, Fanny Crosby. One of the greatest hymn writers in all of history. She was born in 1820, lived to 1915, so lived 95 years. Over those 95 years, she wrote over 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns. I mean, just to put that into perspective, that's two hymns a week. She wrote so many, she had to use pseudonyms, because no one believed she wrote that many. But some of the hymns, you would know. Blessed Assurance, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, To God Be the Glory. Now, What you might not know of her was that she was blinded from infancy. She was born to uh, poor parents in New York. And at just six weeks old, she caught a flu. Her eyes got inflamed. The family doctor was away, so they had to find another doctor. And that doctor came, recommended to the family, why don't you just put on her eyes mustard plasters? Now, mustard plasters, if you put that on the skin... It would burn. But that doctor was suggesting put this on the eye. What happened? Well, that treatment blinded her. She was only six weeks old. They even later found out that that doctor was no doctor at all. It was just a fake. Now, just imagine that. The heartache for the family. The heartache for her later in life to learn of that. I mean, doesn't she have the right to complain to God? God, why did you give me this lot in life? But do you know what she said? Do you know what she thought? Well, she wrote this poem. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Do you know how old she was when she wrote that poem? Eight years old. When I was eight... I did match timetables nothing like that one time much later in life by this stage she was very famous in america for all her hymns a preacher very sympathetically asked i think it a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he shouts so many other gifts upon you she quickly replied this do you know that if at birth i had been able to make one petition it would have been that I should be born blind. The preacher asked why. She replied, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Saviour. I mean, how does she make sense of her life of suffering and pain? How does she endure restless patience awaiting for future glory when one day she will meet her Saviour? her hopes written in her songs and written in one of her most famous hymns, to God be the glory. Listen to the words of this hymn and the last verse and we'll sing this later. Listen to her hope of seeing her savior. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done and great our rejoicing through Jesus the son but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. She can't see. But that was her hope. And so, how can we who are Christians make sense of all of this messiness of life? Well, this is how. This is how. For God works his good things, his wonderful purposes through all things to those who love him always. That's how. Let's pray.